Acts chapter 26. We're going to read the entire chapter. If you're able, I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read God's Word together today. Acts chapter 26, starting with verse 1. And it says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you, to you for this purpose, to appoint you as servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me, seen, seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of God, uh, Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the, Judea, the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying uh, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day 
become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if, it had, if he had not appealed to Caesar. I want to speak to you this morning on a theme that I pick up in verse 28, a question that is asked. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we do ask for your help, Lord. I pray that these truths would come alive in our hearts as we receive this as your word to us. Help me to communicate your truth. Help your people here to have open ears and open hearts, open eyes to hear, to see, to touch, to know Christ. I pray that we would be strengthened in our faith as a result of this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Samuel Hoare was a famous attorney back in the 1800s. And one day, he made a big mistake. He was representing a particular defendant. And when it came time to persuade the jurors to hear the defense case, Hoare said, the facts favoring my client are so evident, I will not insult your intelligence by arguing them. And he sat down. <clears throat> the jury went into deliberation, and after a few minutes, they came out with a guilty verdict. Samuel Hoare was shocked. He said, How could you have reached such a verdict? One of the jurors stood and replied, We all agreed that if anything could have been said for this case, it would have been said. But since you didn't present any evidence, we decided to rule against you. As one person wrote, commenting on this case, silence had lost the case. Silence had lost the case. Nobody was persuaded because of silence. You see, church, it is not enough to just tell your friends that you believe in God. It's not enough to encourage your friends to, hey, you should believe in God. It's not even enough to name the second person of the Trinity and to tell your friends, hey, I believe in Jesus, and you should, too, believe in Jesus. Well, what does that even mean? When you say, oh, well, they believe in God, so they must be good to go, what does that even mean? When we feel like we've shared the gospel simply because the name of Jesus came up, what does that even mean? You see, our job as Christians is to persuade lost people to believe in Jesus. To persuade them. Everybody say, persuade. persuade. Would you persuade me to become a Christian? Was asked of Paul. It's our job to sway our friend's perception of their sin. It's our job to help satisfy their skepticism, and their dilemmas. It's our job to show them Jesus and to show that Jesus is the sufficient Savior that can be trusted as the redemption for their sins. But how many of us often commit the same error that Samuel Hoard committed back in the day? 
not wanting to insult their intelligence, afraid of what they might think if we use words. We allow silence to lose the case for us. Well, I want to look at Paul's example today in Acts chapter 26. As Paul uses words, lots of words in this chapter, in great detail, filled with theology and doctrine and logic, all to seek to persuade a man named King Agrippa to become a Christian. And not only King Agrippa, but all who are hearing his voice. Now to understand where we're at in chapter 26, let's go back two years. Paul was uh, uh, charged with breaking Jewish customs, with breaking Jewish laws, and while he caught the charge, he was indeed innocent of all the accusations. They could prove nothing against him. And so then as a result, if you remember the story, Paul sat in jail for how many years? Two years. Because uh, Governor Felix, over, who was the Roman governor over the area, uh, wanted a bribe from Paul. And Paul was unwilling to bribe his way out of jail, and so he sat there for two years. Finally, Governor Felix is replaced by the new Emperor Nero with Governor Festus. And Paul now gets another hearing before Festus. Now, when Paul is before Festus, Festus asks Paul, where do you want to be officially tried? And this is very important for the narrative of Acts. Because it answers the historic question, how did Paul end up in Rome? Well, it's because when Paul was given the option, Paul appealed to Caesar, which means that he's going to be sent, we're going to see this in the next chapter, from Palestine across the Mediterranean to Rome. And there he will appeal before Caesar, and eventually Nero will have his head chopped off. Now, this appeal to Caesar created a new problem for Governor Festus because Governor Festus had to write down the charges to send to Nero. This is what he's guilty of. This is what the accusations are. But Festus couldn't figure them out because they were so nebulous, because Paul was innocent. And so Festus brings in a man named Agrippa, and that brings us to uh, chapter 26. Agrippa is the Rome-appointed tetrarch or king of parts of Israel and other parts kind of surrounding Israel. Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Now, this Christmas, when you read Luke 2, which I encourage you to do on Christmas morning, and you read the, the Christmas story, when you see that part of Herod wanting to kill the baby Jesus, and then killing all the two-year-olds and under in the land, that is great-grandfather Herod to Agrippa. When you read the Christmas story, I want you to just pause there this, week, this weekend and just say, wow, what a turn of events. That the, this, this powerful king who's trying to kill this baby Jesus will one day have his great-grandson evangelized by Jesus' own anointed missionary. Isn't that beautiful? So, so Paul here is sharing the gospel with King Agrippa in chapter 26. That's where we're at. Now, if it seems crazy to you that Paul is being tried and held for something he didn't do, just remember Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In chapter 26, we see uh, what, what could be entitled, and it actually is in the Bible, copy of the Bible I have, it's entitled, Paul's Defense Before Agrippa. But it's really so much more than just simply a dry offense, uh, a defense before Agrippa, isn't it? I mean, what we see here is a doctrinal statement and a, a passionate uh, sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness for all people. Paul is more than ju just simply a man that's on the defense here, but Paul is an evangelist. 
In verses 1 through 18, we see how Paul became a Christian, and he talks about why he's telling everybody about Jesus. In verses 19 through 23, we see Paul preaching directly to King Agrippa. In verse 24, Festus, Governor Festus, uh, I think he feels a certain way for Agrippa, and he cuts Paul off, and he says, are you out of your mind? Now, it's not because of the, the truths that Paul is stating. Festus has heard all of these before. I think what Festus means by are you out of your mind is, is, is this. Are you, are you crazy enough to think that you can persuade King Agrippa to become a Christian? Have you lost your mind? to use this tone of persuasion? I think that's what he means by that. Which is why Paul steps back and says, look, I'm speaking boldly to Agrippa. He knows what I'm talking about. Like, this stuff didn't happen in a corner. And then uh, Paul immediately then asks uh, Agrippa, look at verse 25. Let's just reread it again. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, then he asks this question. He says, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I know you believe. Now, see, what he's doing here is he's he's pleading with Agrippa to consider the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God sent Jesus to suffer on his behalf. And when he's asking, look, he's turning it. He's no longer just a man making a defense. He's he's getting personal with Agrippa. He's asking Agrippa about his personal beliefs. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Because if Agrippa says, yes, I do, well, then Paul's logic must follow. Well, you've got to consider Jesus then as the fulfillment of, of the prophets. He's pleading with them. He's sharing the gospel with them. He's an evangelist. Now, this leads to the climax in verse 28, it says, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that you not only, uh, uh, not, not only you, but all those who hear me might become such as I am. Except for these chains. I think he's saying that like a hint, hint. Like, could we, could we take these off? No Christian deserves this. Makes me wonder about our own priorities. If we were in Paul's shoes, would we care more about our freedom than about the eternal state of Agrippa's soul? I wonder if you are more concerned about your job security than the salvation of your boss. I wonder if you're more concerned about your neighbor's acceptance than your neighbor's soul. I wonder if you're more concerned about your friendship with the skeptic than you are about your friend's eternal well-being. In other words, I wonder if we are more concerned about our popularity than we are our proclamation of Jesus Christ. Even as you go uh, potentially home this Christmas or spend time with family, friends that don't know Jesus, I wonder if I wonder if you hate the idea of an awkward conversation more than you hate the idea of your friend or family member spending their life in eternity without Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. In our courage, we need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as uh, as doves. We, we We are not to do anything rash or say anything rash that would jeopardize our ability long-term to communicate the gospel with somebody. I've known people who uh, try to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with such an angry and arrogant tone that they persuade nobody to consider Christ. They lack all sense of persuasion. Speaking of lacking sense, I've, I've known some people who, who are uh, truly well-meaning, but they, they lack any sense of who they're talking to. And they're sharing the gospel to somebody in a way that just doesn't make any sense to that individual because they haven't thought about the person. 
and their own desires and their thoughts and their concerns, their doubts. You know, Paul, I just want to point this out, like in all of these different defenses and as Paul's speaking the gospel, he does it differently every single time. He doesn't change the gospel message. The essential truths remain the same. But what he emphasizes, his approach, his, even his, uh, how aggressive he is in sharing the gospel, it changes based on who he's talking to. So all of this matters. You know, on one hand, we could say that uh, some people are so brash, so unconcerned, that nobody is persuaded. Yet, on the other hand, we can be so concerned about the other person's acceptance of us. We can be so concerned about our popularity. We can so, be so concerned about worldly acceptance that we allow silence to win the case. And I think for most of us, just knowing our church, if we're going to err one side or the other, I'm concerned that we probably would err on that side. That we might err more on being respectable. Not saying enough. Out of fear. Out of being seen as weird. That guy. That type of person. Now, I just want to broadly say this and put this over the whole text. The gospel is a hope that is revealed for everybody clear in the text. Since that is the case, we ought to evangelize everybody. Now, even when I use that word evangelism, though, I might lose some of you. You might say, what does he mean by, quote unquote, evangelize? What is evangelism? Well, let me answer that question of what is evangelism as I explain the text to you and encourage you to be people who are evangelists. Let me give you a phrase that I kind of came up with to summarize this text, and I'm going to break this phrase in, down into my three points, all right? Here's my phrase. Evangelism is communicating a universal message from God with the goal of persuading the sinner to meet Jesus, trusting God with the results. That's my three-point sermon right there. Can I give it to you again? Yeah. Evangelism is communicating a universal message from God. Meaning a worldwide message from the Creator for every single human being. With the goal of persuading the sinner to meet Jesus. Thirdly, trusting God with the results. Let me break that down first. Evangelism is communicating a universal message from God. Agrippa, in chapter 26, gives Paul permission to speak, and Paul immediately does what? He begins to share his testimony. And as Paul shares his testimony, he seamlessly weaves in a whole bunch of doctrine. And I want to go through the doctrine of his testimony, and I want to show you how I believe it's the doctrine of the gospel that actually gives Paul the motivation to share the gospel with Agrippa. Are you with me? Well, what's the doctrine I see here? First, Paul says with this universal message from God that we have a universal problem, or in other words, a worldwide global problem, and that is that people are bad. Well, Paul tells us this through telling his own testimony. In verses 4 through 11, we see that God saves bad people. Paul begins by saying, hey, these Jews, the ones that are uh, against me here, they know me. They saw me grow up in Jerusalem. They know that I was part of this very strict uh, sect of Judaism known as the Pharisees. And he goes on to say that he was a very bad guy. In verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Well, Paul is here. He's identifying on one hand with the Jews that are accusing him. But he's also being honest. I'm not a Christian because I was a good person. 
I was at one time a rebel against Jesus. I hated Christ. I locked up Christians. I tried to make them blaspheme, he says. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote in favor of, their, of the death penalty. You know, in the Scriptures, we know definitely of Paul's presence at the murder of Stephen. What we see here is that there must have been more. Stephen wasn't the only one. But likely Paul oversaw or voted in favor of death for a number of Christians. Paul was a really bad dude. Let that sink in. Uh, Isaiah earlier this week was, was telling me that uh, as, as the more he's learning the Bible, the more I'm realizing, he says, that a lot of these heroes were really bad people. But that's our doctrine, church. Like, Christians emphasize that more than any other religion, more than any other worldview, more than any other philosophy, that we are all really bad. Like, God didn't come to save good people. God came to save bad people. And that was me, and that was you. We are sinners. We are rebels against God. We deserve the death penalty because of what we have done to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. We are against Him, and His judgment is against us. But Jesus was born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Come on, I need an amen right there. I need some kind of something, church. I know Jody's not here today, but please. Universal problem is that we are sinners, but that leads us to the universal revelation. Our universal revelation. If I were to say, if I were to say, hey, everybody, vote for Mitchell uh, for the city council of Baltimore, that would be a Baltimore-related revelation that Mitchell is running for city council. It would be a a, a Baltimore-focused kind of message, right? Or we could talk about American politics and who's the president and who should be the president. We could talk about those sort of things, but then I, I also hear friends who don't live in America who talk about American politics, which are so near and dear to our heart, And they talk about American politics in just sort of like this joking, they just joke about American politics. Because they don't feel like it really relates to them. Like, oh, you Americans, you think the world revolves around you, they would say. It's an American sort of message. But when we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not Baltimore-specific, it's not America-specific. It's not just a message for the religious people. It's not just a message for those who are interested in Christianity. It's not just a message for westernized countries. No, church, this message is a worldwide message revealed by the Creator God who created Adam, who called Abraham, who gave him a revelation, a prophecy, a covenant, And on through, this God has revealed a message to the entire globe. There is not a single person alive today for whom this message is irrelevant. No, it's for everybody. And Paul Paul actually kind of shows this in in his own way. The second doctrine that he highlights here is that it's a revelation for all people, not some private idea. It didn't just happen in a corner, he says. It's not just for uh, an exclusive community, like this quote-unquote sect of Christians. No. He says, and look at verse 6, he says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, I'm standing today on trial because of a hope God made to them. To which are 12 tribes, that's that's kind of a nickname for all of Israel, 
hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. This is the strongest connection in Paul's speaking uh, speeches in which he connects Christianity with Judaism. Remember, Paul has been accused of being like creating this new sect, starting some kind of new religion, if you would, or offshoot. But Paul is saying that what I'm on trial for is the fulfillment of our entire religion. He's, he's tried for the very hope that our people have always hoped in, he's saying. And so then he rhetorically asks in verse 8, why would anybody consider the resurrection to be incredible? This is what our people have always been looking for. It's what we've always been hoping in. One person summarizes Paul's theology here by saying, the true Jew, this is summary of Paul's theology, the true Jew must become a Christian in order to remain a true Jew. That seems to be what Paul thinks. Like Paul is not starting a new religion. He's saying, look, I'm Jewish. I'm with these people. I believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the God of this world who created all things. And what I'm saying is if you want to remain with this God in our religion, then you must accept Jesus Christ because He is the fulfillment of everything that we have been looking forward to. Meaning, this message is as necessary for Felix as it was for Paul. This uh, this message is as necessary for Agrippa as it was for Abraham. This message is as necessary for Nero as it was for Noah. Let me ask you this question, church. Who in your life doesn't need to hear this message? Who is too great in your life to hear this message from your lips? Who is too low in your life that doesn't need to hear this message from your lips? It's a universal revelation for all people. And as He is revealed as the Lord, that leads me to my third doctrinal point, that He is the universal Lord that Paul presents. The universal Lord. So as Paul then is talking through his testimony, he talks about how he he used to persecute Christians and try to lock them up, and he voted in favor of their death. And that leads him to this, this moment in which he was on a road to Damascus. And he said, while I was on this road, a light brighter than the sun shone, knocked us all to the ground. And he said, I heard the voice, and he, he, he says that this is Jesus himself talking to him. And this is what Jesus said in verse 14 in the Hebrew language. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad is a spear in the ancient world. Kicking against the goads would have been kind of a nickname phrase for the whole message of what Jesus was saying. It's a phrase that Agrippa would have been familiar with uh, as a, as a uh, Hellenized Jew. Uh, a, a goad was a spear that would be used when you're steering an ox, a big animal. And if the animal was being you know, a little stubborn, you stick him with the goad. Now, at times, an ox might get a little frustrated with you. And they start kicking back against the goad. Well, what what happens when an ox starts kicking against the goad? The spear, or the goad, only goes in deeper. Meaning, your resistance is only creating more suffering. It reminds me of my dog when I was a child, Rusty. We, for a brief time, put a choker collar on this dog. And because, you know, he didn't want to be on a leash. He was a wild animal. And so I was trying to walk him on a choker collar, and he just pulled harder and harder and harder. His eyes were like bugging out. You know, he's just like, and he's still pulling. You know, you resist the choker collar, it's going to increase 
your suffering. You resist the goad, you're going to increase your pain, and you resist God. It's only going to create more problems in your life. It's only going to create more suffering in your life. It gives a whole new meaning uh, to this phrase, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Jesus asked Saul that question, he didn't ask it as some kind of helpless victim like Saul. Why are you persecuting me, bro? I mean, it's, it's me. You know what I'm saying? Like, as if Jesus was like, had his feelings hurt because Paul was persecuting him. No, I think it, whoop, it gives us a little different kind of understanding of that in which Jesus, I think what Jesus is saying is, is Saul, how dare you persecute me? Why are you persecuting me? Like Jesus is the one with the spear in his hands. Saying the more you resist, the more suffering you're going to have in your life. And church, that applies to you as well. When you resist Jesus through maybe pursuing your flesh, pursuing sin, doing your own thing, living outside of what God has clearly revealed for your life in his word. When you resist Jesus, your suffering will only increase. And we can be blind to that. You know, maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian. You don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. And all of this just sounds like foolishness to you. Your, your resistance is only heaping up mound, mounds and mounds of, of, of judgment against you. You will not win. Because Jesus is the universal Lord. He is the Lord of all people. Why is it that that Paul has so much confidence to speak Jesus to Agrippa. It's because Paul believes that Jesus is over Agrippa. Jesus is greater Agrippa. He has an allegiance to a greater king. And that same kind of uh, confidence ought to encourage you guys. As you're talking to your friends, and you might think the world of them, but you've got to remember Jesus is greater than them. Jesus is coming at them with a spear. All right, There are mounds of judgment coming against them if they don't repent. Like they're... The resistance against Jesus is not good for them. Following Jesus is good for them. And that gives you courage in your evangelism. You see how, this, you see how the doctrine of the gospel leads you to gospel proclamation. That's what I'm trying to get at today. Are you with me? Also, we see a worldwide remedy. Well, we've, we've talked about the problem. We, we now got to talk about the remedy. There's a worldwide global remedy. Twice in this chapter, in verse 18 and verse 23, the gospel message is referred to as being a light. Everybody say light. Light shines in the darkness. Light is good, especially in the ancient world before street lights and electricity. A light in the darkness would have been such a blessing. Jesus comes as light. As a light not just for a corner, not just for the small sect of Christians, not just for some people, not just for those who are the religious types, a light for the whole world. In verse 20, Paul emphasizes this by saying that he went everywhere, to Damascus, to Jerusalem, and then to all the Gentiles. It's for everybody, this revelation. And they should do what? This is what God reveals in verse 20. Everybody look at verse 20 with me. End of verse 20. It says, here's what they should do. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. I need to unpack this just briefly here, because this is an important understanding of what is our response to the gospel message. Well, repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Now, some are, I think, genuinely concerned that if we put too much of an emphasis on repentance, that this could lead to what you would call a works-based salvation. And I can sympathize with that concern because the Bible does not teach a works-based salvation. Amen? But here, I just want to show you that I think the word repentance is on two sides of the same coin with faith, not two sides of the same coin with good works. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's synonymous with faith. 
uh, meaning repentance is a change of mind. Well, faith is a change of mind. Faith, genuine faith, involves the change of mind that we call in the Bible repentance. So if you look again at verse 20, he says, I preached that they, now first, they is to refer to the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, there are some Christians today that would say that repentance is a message for the Jews, but the Gentiles only have the message of believe. Well, clearly here, Paul is saying that there's one message for all people, not a different message for the Jews, uh, and a different message for the Gentiles. But they, all those that I was, uh, have been preaching to, uh, that they should do what? Repent. And, and turn to God and demonstrate their, good rep, uh, rep, their repentance by their good deeds. Now here, look at good deeds in the, in the verse. They demonstrate their repentance by their good deeds. You see here, good deeds are not re, the same thing as repentance. Good deeds are disconnected in the sense that they uh, are a proof of one's repentance. Are you with me? So in verse 22, Paul testifies to small and great uh, that they ought to turn to God, have this change of mind, repentance, and then perform good deeds showing that they actually repented. Does that make sense? Um, meaning grow in your Christian life, and it shows that you're what? That you had genuine saving faith, that you are a Christian, that you turned to the Lord in faith. Now, this leads then to that big question that I started with, where Agrippa looks at Paul and says, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? Paul then summarizes the message of uh, Jesus in verse 23. He says that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. The point that I'm trying to make is that the very doctrine of the Gospel, including our Gospel call, is what gives us the motivation to take the Gospel to all people, a.k.a to do the work of evangelism. If I could summarize the gospel here, the gospel is simply this, everybody is a sinner. You are bad in your sin. The wrath of God is against you. And the more you resist God, the more you are just punishing yourself. But God sent His Son as the light of the world. And He is the remedy for our sin. His suffering wasn't accidental, but it was God's plan that Jesus suffered. And our call is to repent, or aka to change your mind about your life in this world, and to turn in faith to Jesus. And the result is that you live a life freed from the slavery to sin, and you're actually to, you're, you're able to, to perform good deeds before God for the first time ever. The gospel or I'm sorry, evangelism, is communicating the gospel, this worldwide message of God, with the goal of persuading the sinner to meet Jesus. So when Agrippa asks that question, are you trying to persuade me? Paul answers in verse 29, and he says, I would to God that not only you, but everybody who's hearing my voice would become such as I am except these chains. Chains. Yes, Paul is trying to persuade Agrippa. But the third part of my definition of evangelism is that we also trust God with the results. Look at how Paul answers Agrippa. He doesn't deny that he's trying to persuade him, but rather he broadens it. Look at, look at the verse. It says, I would to God that you become like me. I would to God. That is another way of saying, I pray to God that you would indeed become a Christian. Because only God can do the work of conversion. You can't convert your friend. You can't make your friend into a Christian. When your friend says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Your answer could be just like Paul's. You know, I pray to God that he would make you a Christian. You see, 
Paul doesn't want Agrippa to just become a Christian in name only. His goal isn't to, to get Agrippa to start going to church on Sundays. Don't think that that's evangelism when you're trying to get your friend to go to church on Sundays. It's good, they can hear the gospel. But he's not just trying to create some sort of uh, semblance of Christianity in this man's life. As if uh, Christianity is just like any other religion where you just sort of doing the, uh, uh, start doing these things and now you can be a Christian. No, 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 no. You don't make yourself a Christian. And Paul can't make you a Christian. He would to God that God would make you a Christian. You see, Paul wants Agrippa to become a real Christian. And that is a work of conversion, a work of regeneration, in which the Holy Spirit of God moves in and takes up residence in a person's life and changes them. And so therefore, Paul leaves the results in God's hands. Now, Agrippa is almost persuaded, but he walks away. And I wonder if there's anybody in this room who could be tempted to become an Agrippa. Almost persuaded. Almost persuaded, but you walk away from the hope of salvation. May that not be the case for anybody here. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, an island of cannibals off the coast of Australia back in the day. And John Patton tells the story of a chief who came to him one day and he said, he said, I would, I would be a Christian were it not that all the rest would laugh at me. That I could not stand. Almost persuaded, Patton continued in his biography. Almost persuaded. And then Patton says, before you blame him, remember how many Christian lands and amid greater privileges, Christians live and die without passing beyond that stage. Where it could even be socially acceptable, he's saying, to be a Christian. But you never pass beyond that stage of fear of man almost persuaded and you walk away may that not be you turn to christ now find christ to be a sufficient savior for your sins trust in him completely let me just close with three quick lessons for us as christians i'm thinking of this weekend being a weekend where where many of you we'll have opportunities to rub shoulders with the lost. In your evangelism, use your testimony. Use your testimony. Tell your story of how you became a Christian. But don't just talk about your story. I want you to take the doctrines of the gospel and infuse them into your, your, your story, your testimony. Does that make sense? Let your testimony, as you talk about what God has done in your life, be so thick with doctrine, the doctrines and theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even in telling your testimony, you're persuading the sinner to believe. Uh, I want to brag on some of our own people, as we've had uh, some conversions and baptisms in 2021 I was looking through some baptism testimonies, and I want to draw out some of the ways that some of you guys actually infused doctrine into your testimony as you stood up in front of this people and talked about Jesus Christ and his work in your life. Vladimir, when he was baptized, he said, I stand here as a sinner who's been saved by grace, not because of my own works or religious piety, but because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. I've been justified so that when God looks at me, he no longer sees my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ himself. Instead of my own deeds, I now put my faith in Jesus who performed and fulfilled the law for me. When Olivia was baptized, she said, I can do Uh, 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 I can do nothing to be worthy of this baptism. And no experience, 
how awful or awesome, will earn the Lord's favor. Antoinette, just a few weeks ago when she was baptized, she said, Jesus died for my sins. And I can trust Him for forgiveness and salvation. We do good works not to get saved, but to please God because we are saved. I remember when Tyler was baptized. He said, I am only worthy of death. And I deserve only death, but my Lord Jesus Christ took that punishment for me. He suffered. He was spit on. He was speared. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tormented for me. When my daughter Eden was baptized, she said, I know now that good works is not how you become saved. It's all grace. My daughter Jaden, when she was baptized, she said, Jesus died on the cross for my sins that I could have access to God and not perish in hell for eternity. A few weeks ago, Tanika, when she was baptized, she said, I believe that my works, good deeds, and morals did not lead to salvation. But today I stand here before you to repent, and, or I believe that they did lead to salvation, but today I stand here before you to repent and display the outward acknowledgement that I believe that God sent His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, and that through His sacrificial death and resurrection, I am saved from, my, from condemnation that my sins deserve. Don't you love a testimony that is thick with doctrine? Weaving the doctrines of the gospel into the story of how you got saved is a powerful tool in your evangelism church. And when you spend time with friends and family over Christmas, I want you to share the doctrine of the gospel as you tell your story of what God has done in your life. And seeking them, second lesson, in, in your evangelism, seeking, to them to per, uh, seeking I'm sorry, to persuade the sinner. Persuade the sinner. Look, we've got a lot of persuasion to do in Baltimore City. In the news this last week, I, I saw one day, triple homicide. The next day, quadruple homicide. The, the day after that, uh, what is it, quintuple? Is that the right word? Qu quint, quint, quintuple homicide? Uh, right around us. Right around us. Violence all around us. And the way I see it is we have two options. One, we could leave. Or two, we can, we can, we can stay as missionaries in a tough city seeking to persuade the sinner to come to Jesus because Christ is the only hope for Baltimore City. And he is the only hope for your friends and for your family. A young salesman had a door slammed in his face and his sales mentor said, uh, uh, lo looked at him, and the young salesman said, well, I guess that means you can't win them all. The older sales mentor said, well, he said, here's the thing. All you can do is, is lead a horse to the water. You can't make him drink. All you can do is lead a horse to the water, and then through leading him to the water, try to show him his thirst. I think that applies to us as well. In our persuasion, we can't make somebody drink the waters of the gospel, but we persuade them to come with us to the waters of Jesus Christ, to the hope of salvation, and try to show them that they do have a thirst for God, and they're, they're seeking to quench that thirst through everything else this world offers. But there's only one water that can quench your thirst. Whether they drink, that's between them and God. But you've led them to the water. Seek to persuade the sinner. Third quick lesson, and I'm done. In our evangelism, trust God for the results. Trust God for the results. Agrippa walked away from Paul. Felix walked away from Paul. Was Paul not a successful evangelist? Think about this, church. Paul saw his, his calling in prison here to, to speak the gospel to these world leaders. And so therefore, he was satisfied sitting in prison for two years. And none of them got saved. Was Paul a failure? 
Did he get angry with God and say, well, why have I been here for two years if you weren't even going to save any of them? No. Paul did his job. Paul was a successful evangelist even when people didn't come to Jesus. Do people need to respond favorably to Jesus for you to be a successful evangelist? The answer is no. Even if they walk away, even if they reject you, you've been, you've been successful. You have been faithful to God and what God has called you to do. So trust the results to God. Let me just simply, simply end my sermon by asking you, are your feet beautiful? I think some of you know what I mean. Are your feet beautiful? And will they be beautiful this Christmas season? Let me explain that. There was a missionary who was preaching to a village market. And he was a rather ugly missionary. And because of his ugliness, the villagers were actually laughing at him. Well, this had to be kind of difficult. And so he realized it, and so he, he responded to it. And he said, it is true that I do not have beautiful hair, for I am almost bald. Nor do I have beautiful teeth, for they are not really mine. They were made by a dentist. I do not have a beautiful face, nor can I afford to wear beautiful clothes. But this I know. I have beautiful feet. And then he, he quoted from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verse 7, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him that brings good news. Have beautiful feet this Christmas. Not literally. Spiritually. Paul, his, Paul's literal feet, think about them. He traveled all over, all over the place in sandals. His literal feet were probably filled with scars, swollen from walking. But they were beautiful feet because they carried the life-saving message of Jesus Christ to people who were dying and on their way to hell. Oh, and if his feet were beautiful, how much more beautiful were the feet of Jesus Christ himself, who was the original to walk, to carry this gospel message. It says in early in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. He had the most beautiful feet of all. Oh, I'm sure His feet on earth were also looking pretty rough, wearing sandals all day, walking as much as He did. But they were beautiful because He carried the message of hope to the lost. How beautiful were His feet as He walked to the highways and to the byways of this world. How beautiful were His feet as He carried the good news of, of, of Himself and the kingdom of hope and healing to the lame, to the destitute. How beautiful were the feet of Jesus when He walked with that man's servant to the body of that dead daughter and He rose that daughter from the dead displaying the hope of resurrection for all people. How beautiful were the feet of Jesus when he stood before 5,000 people. And it says that his heart broke with compassion for them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had beautiful feet. And by the time he died, church, he had a nail in both of them. Because he died on that cross for your sins. Even that nail becomes part of the eternal beauty that we will forever just gaze and look at as Jesus' wounds, through his wounds, we were healed, church. His feet were beautiful. His feet are beautiful. May we then have beautiful feet as we walk, as we carry, as we take the message of Jesus to the, to the destitute, to the, to the hurting, to the lost, to the wandering, even, even potentially this Christmas season as you might travel, as you go places. Go as the mouthpiece of God. And may your feet be beautiful as a result. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You, Lord, that Jesus Himself 
had beautiful feet as he carried the message of the gospel throughout the known world at the time and then unleashed his army of disciples into this world of which we are a part to continue to carry that message of hope to the lost and dying world. I pray, God, that you would give us opportunities to speak the gospel even this week as we see friends, coworkers, family members, as we live and remain in Baltimore City. May we take the opportunities that we have that you've given us to speak the gospel, this universal message that we would persuade sinners to meet Jesus and that we would trust you with the results. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.